got some coffee. You got some too. Hey, Ice Coffee listeners. Documentary maker and author Jeff Maynard got in touch via the Ice Coffee Podcast Facebook page to let me know if he's enjoying the series and to request more Cowbell or Hubert Wilkins. I'm always getting those two things mixed up. I had him over for coffee and enjoyed the experience immensely. He's the person to talk to if you want to discuss Sir Hubert, and he brought the good oil to the fore for you. In a rare nod to bibliographic notes, I've been rereading and making extensive notes in my copy of Jeff Maynard's book, Wings of Ice, as I prepare episodes addressing high-latitude aviation efforts. I'm looking forward to reading his subsequent book about Sir Hubert Wilkins during his time on the Western Front, The Unseen Anzac and his book about Lincoln Ellsworth when it goes to press in February 2019, Antarctica's Lost Aviator. Besides information, Jeff Maynard bought some of Sir Hubert's exploration-related memorabilia and gave me some insight into how deep a person can dive into discovering, synthesising and writing about the people who catch their attention. Where I read the books on my shelves and regurgitate my version of that into a microphone, Jeff Maynard travels to museums and libraries that house the collected correspondence and journals of the people he writes about and traces privately owned written material to try to get as complete a picture as possible of who did and thought what before he puts pen to paper. I found this new perspective both daunting and inspiring at once and I have some new ideas about projects that might hold my attention when Ice Coffee comes to its caffeine-addled recounting of what happened in Antarctica last week, then yesterday, then just before Smoko. I use and recommend Jeff Maynard's books and company, though if you read Wings of Ice, don't be at all surprised if it reads as though he plagiarised the text from coming episodes of this series, because that's pretty much what happened except in reverse. And here he is. Welcome to the program, Jeff Maynard, author of Wings of Ice, which I'm reading and taking notes from extensively for the current crop of episodes. He also wrote... The Unseen Anzac. The Unseen Anzac. Sorry, I keep trying to say Invisible Anzac. That title you cannot forget. He yeah, clearly has a focus on Hubert Wilkins in the thread of those two books. And I've asked him along today to speak to me about his expertise, his, his special topic, Hubert Wilkins. I've already covered in the series his childhood in South Australia on the farm, the, the troubles that the farm had with drought and that that was his spur to head off and try and explore polar regions and establish weather stations. What else do you see as winding up Sir Hubert's clockwork? He, he was a strange fellow and I think he was a bit of a mystery to himself. Um, what he, he he did say he was um, encouraged or spurred on by that sort of quest, if you like, to um, uh, understand the world's weather so that they could predict droughts and things like that. I think it actually went a little bit deeper than that. One of the things I found in one of his early manuscripts, and you have to understand that Wilkins constantly wrote manuscripts about his life, and throughout his life he modified them. As more things happened, he would go back and rewrite his history. And then in the 1940s, he was asked to write a series of radio programs about his life, which he did, uh, but he fictionalised a great deal of what he did. And so it's very hard to understand when he's 
talking the truth and when he's making bits up. And, uh, but one of the early uh, manuscripts I found, he first, his first experience of war was in 1912. He was working in London as a cinematographer. A war broke out in the Balkans and he was sent across to cover it, to film it. And he was sent across to film it from the Turkish side. The Turks were fighting the Bulgarians and the Greeks and they were trying to push the Greeks and Bulgarians and things were trying to push the Turks back. And uh, he, he, he writes about going out on his horse with the first time with the Turkish army. And they get to the top of a hill. Down in the valley, there's a village of, of Turkish people that are fleeing from the oncoming Greeks, Bulgarians and things. And Wilkins writes about a charge, that how the Turks charged down the hill to stop their own people fleeing. Um, I'm actually going to read a little bit from the manuscript because uh, he talks about um, uh, the cavalry charge. They're all on horses. And he said, We went down that slope like rolling thunder, every one of us mad with exultation. We didn't know what we were charging into. We didn't care. All we wanted was to kill. We charged into that rabble of Turks, foot soldiers and peasants. The Turkish cavalry charged into their own people and cut them down, cut them to pieces, men, women and children. The very horses were screaming with bloodlust. It was all that I could do to keep from pulling my revolver and killing everything in sight. The madness of that charge got to all of us. And I think he was, Wilkins was horrified by the war, but he was also horrified by something he saw inside himself. And that was an ability for a civilised person in the madness of a charge, in the madness of the mob, to actually kill and he said at that moment, he was willing to pull out his revolver and shoot women and children. Um, and that worried him all his life. That was the thing. He constantly spoke that civilization had to reach a higher standard. We had to pass on from that ability. He became a big reader of Nietzsche, the philosopher. And, and, and Nietzsche, who was a philosopher who probably needed a good editor more than anything else, but talked about the evolution of mankind and that we would evolve. We would evolve past the need for gods. We would evolve past superstition. We would evolve past, you know, our minds would evolve and we'd become a, a more civilised people. And Wilkins believed that. And he saw his role in exploring the polar regions um, and, and figuring out the weather and, and all this kind of thing was one part in a process of helping mankind evolve to a higher state of civilization. And throughout his life, he would give speeches about the next steps towards civilization, how we evolve, how we become uh, more civilized. And I think it goes back to that sort of fear within himself that we were always just, you know, uh, one step away from just being able to do completely barbaric things to our fellow men. Um, and, and, um, and that was... That was something that sort of, I think, almost haunted him all his life. And he spoke about it during the 1920s as being his work, his quest. You know, I, uh, he'd write to his family and say, you know, I'm, I'm fed up with the polar regions, but my work is not yet finished. And he'd talk about that. And, um, and I, I think that was, that sort of drove him. And by the time, uh, by the late 1920s, um, He'd, he'd obviously explored, flown across the Arctic Ocean. He'd flown great areas of Antarctica. Um, uh, the Depression set in, so he couldn't get any money. Um, but, but he'd sort of gone out on that quest. He'd gone out on that, that sort of... Um, he'd set himself a course. So even though he didn't have the money in the 1930s to do it, 
he, he kind of couldn't retreat. He just kept, he didn't. He was a man without a home in many senses. And, um, and so he just had nowhere to go. He just stayed on the quest, if you like. And that, that stayed all his life. He never, he never settled. Um, even though he married in 1929, he probably married the wrong woman. Um, she was shallow, deceitful, vain, uh, selfish. This is Susan. Suzanne. He married, he married an Australian actress called Suzanne Bennett in 1929. She was probably the wrong wife for him. Um, and so uh, she admitted, took up with other men. Uh, so he was out on the quest. He was the guy trying to save the world and she was at home spending the money and putting a hand up for more money, which he didn't have. So he, he sort of became this sort of, uh, you know, the Australian bloke that went down his shed to work and never went back kind of thing. And uh, he stayed that way all his life. You mentioned his experiences in 1912 as opening his eyes to what people later categorised as the banality of evil. Do you think that that influenced his actions in the First World War? I read about him as the photographer. Yes. It, Ypres? Is that how you pronounce it? Ypres, yeah, Ypres, yeah the, the battle of... of yeah, yeah. Um, just ridiculously brave and one of the few artists to be to be decorated for yes. their actions under fire. Was he seeing his role in that war as part of that quest? He needed to document what was happening to open humanity's eyes to that. Partly. There was, a, there was another part of him too that had a good Protestant upbringing, that you, you work, you serve, you know, you work hard, you do your job the best you can. Um, and af after his experience in the Balkans War in 1920, 1912, sorry, in 1912, and he'd experienced that horrible thing in war, and he was obviously carrying a revolver, because he said, you know, I had to stop myself pulling out my revolver and shooting people. Um, he actually said, I will not carry a gun into battle again. But then, uh, but after that experience in 1912, he went to the Arctic for three years, and he spent three years wandering around the ice, living with what they call the Eskimos. We call them Inuit these days. He spent three years living with them, and he talks about their type of civilization. And he said, he said, in many ways, their civilization. He kept using this word civilization. Their civilization is superior to ours. And so he spent three years in the ice with these people who shared everything and did all these things. Uh, and then he came back and he went straight to the Western Front and he spent two years in that slaughter. So that that juxtaposition, if you like, of going from you know the white silence to the, the mud of the Western Front was was um, had a huge effect on him. And he never carried a gun when he was at the Western Front. But he also had this sort of Protestant upbringing of you do your duty. And when he arrived at the Western Front, Charles Bean, the official Australian historian, was there. Charles Bean had a very strong sense of duty. We are going to record this war every, you know, uh, Charles Bean said, I want a photograph of every trench. I want a photograph of everything that the Australians evolved in, involved in. And um, when Wilkins turned up, Charles Bean found the perfect photographer for him because the two had the same attitude. You just, you know, you ignore the danger, you ignore everything, you get the job done. And so Wilkins... Yeah, yeah, it was quite strange. Everyone who saw him work in World War One said, he's, you know, he must have a death wish or something. He just, but it was just something that didn't enter his mind. You know, if you had to go over the top with your camera and run forward and get a photograph, he just did it. He didn't think about it. 
And other times when he, he almost stepped back, there was a part of him that could actually step back and look at what he was doing um, as an observer. When he After the war, there was the England-Australian air race where people were trying to fly to Australia and he was a crew, you know, navigator on one of the flights. And they'd, they'd lost one engine and they were flying over the Mediterranean somewhere and they're all thinking, oh, we're going to crash and die. And Wilkins is sort of writing, well, this will be interesting to see what if there's anything after, after death, you know. And so he's observing this thing and they're all sort of thinking, you know, we've got enough fuel on, on you know, can we make it to where, whatever island we're trying to get to? Wilkins is kind of observing, so, well, the next big adventure now, we'll see what, what you know, what's beyond death kind of thing. So there was parts of him that could step back, very, very analytical and very, uh, uh, quite amazing, really, when you think about it. But, uh, and, and there were plenty of incidences like that in his life where it's like anybody else would be saying, oh, God, we're going to die. You know, this is, they'd be doing whatever they do. They pray, they write notes to their loved ones, whatever. He's kind of observing it all, which is quite remarkable. His first foray to Antarctica um, under Sir Ernest Shackleton is yes. is going to receive an episode to itself, but um, he looked to Shackleton as potential mentor in, in how to be a successful explorer. He'd sort of he'd been out under Stephenson and seen Stephenson's yes. friendly Arctic model and yes. seen that that didn't work very well for everyone involved. Yes. Um, do you think that Shackleton was the right man at the right time for him? He, before he went on that expedition, and it was Shackleton's last, obviously, on the quest, um, he really hoped to study. He wrote he wanted to study Shackleton. He wanted to study Shackleton's leadership methods. And uh, that was the plan, to see how to lead men, because Shackleton was considered the ultimate leader of men. Um, he was basically disappointed. He was halfway. Uh, the quest wasn't the best ship in the world. Um, Halfway there, he's, Wilkins is writing letters to his mother saying how disappointed in Shackleton he was. He said he's just, you know, he really only cares about newspaper notices and, you know, the men are all drunk and he starts sort of saying all these sorts of things. So he did go to study Shackleton. He probably didn't like what he saw when he got aboard the quest. And, um, of course, Shackleton died uh, when they were uh, getting to South Georgia. But, but Wilkins was, was kind of disappointed. The, the ship was terrible and... The men were the men didn't really have their hearts in it. They were all sort of getting away from mistresses and doing a bit of drinking and all that. And that really upset Wilkins a great deal. He was very much when you're doing the job, you do the job. You know, you don't you don't mess around with it. So um, uh, yeah, he was probably a bit disappointed in Shackleton. I see in Amundsen his development from second mate aboard the Belgica under fairly catastrophic circumstances, yep. coming out with a model of leadership that worked very well for him. Yes. And I see the same transition in Wilkins, that he had a couple of crook starts in the Arctic and the Antarctic, and then he went on to, to lead very effectively. What do, you, what do you see as his strengths as a leader? I think he... He, he understood that... You can have the uh, promotional side, if you like. You can have all the speeches and raise the money, but it really comes down to getting your equipment right, knowing your ship, knowing you know the technical things are the things that will let you down. And he studied that and worked very hard in those areas. He, he you know, when he got an aeroplane, he studied how to pull the engine apart and put it together. He, 
he knew that you know once you're out on the ice, it came down to your equipment. It came down to you and what you knew. And he was also generally a very, uh, despite his focus, very easygoing. Uh, mo- most, I've never really read anyone who said um, he was a pain in the neck to deal with or he was a terrible leader or anything like that. He, he led by example. He worked very hard. He got the equipment right. And I think the men who were going to put their lives at risk respected that. Um, and that was... Uh, whether it was in an aeroplane, it was particularly true in his submarine when he tried to get to the North Pole in 1931. In his submarine, you know, most of the crew were saying, this is never going to work. But he, he just kept saying, no, we can do this if we do these things. So uh, he, he was, it was a real lead by example type thing. And he was a very modest man too. I think they respected that. Whereas some of the leaders were always sort of, uh, you know, he said about Shackleton, he cares more about newspaper notices type thing than he does about the expedition. Wilkins was always very focused on the nuts and bolts of the expedition and he encouraged people to do the same. The, the contrast, I think, is is most stark between Wilkins and his contemporary Richard Bird. Just the... In, in a sense, yes. Although Bird and Wilkins always stayed friends, but Bird understood that... Uh, Richard Bird understood that you know, you, you needed to be in the newspapers, you needed to um, promote and to get people to give you the money. Um, and, and, and Bert called it the hero business, you know, he, he was going back to America and promoting himself each time, you know, and he was on the radio, he was in the newspapers, he had a trick of always, Bert always had wore his white naval dress uniform, because in the photographs you see everybody lined up in in black and Bird will be standing in the middle of the black and white photographs in a white uniform, you know, and Bird knew all the tricks of publicity and knew how to sort of make it all work and um, and um, um, promoted himself through radio, you know. Wilkins hated all that, he loathed it, you know, talking on the radio, standing up, signing things, speaking, he, he loathed it, as did a lot of the explorers, Humminson loathed it, you know. But, uh, so that they were contrasting in that sense but they were never really true rivals, uh, and, and they remained friends. Bird, Bird said after, because Bird had a big falling out with Lincoln Ellsworth, but uh, Bird, Bird wrote to Wilkins and said, you're one of the few explorers who I've always respected, which I thought was interesting. Uh, another contrast I find in their approach to leadership is Wilkins always seemed to have a, a lean small expedition in contrast to Bird's very large hip, um, multiple, yes. multiple ships. Yes. And well, when B- Bird went to the first, uh, went down to, to fly to the South Pole, I think he had um, two ships and about 80 men, three aeroplanes. Uh, the second time, when he went in 1933, I think he had about 85 men. Uh, a couple of ships again, I think he had um, three or four aeroplanes and a crude form of helicopter um, and and uh, when you look through the records of what Bert took you know there were four tons of chewing gum and 50 tons of tobacco just just amazing you know, I think they had three kitchen sinks you know the old joke you got everything but the kitchen sink on his second expedition to Antarctica Bert had three kitchen sinks so many step ladders and all this stuff it was just huge uh, Wilkins followed the Norwegian idea of you, you you adapt to the ice and you live off the ice you know 
the Americans had the idea that you you remake Antarctica in the American vision. You know, we will build huts, we will have radios. You know, they had jukeboxes. You know, 1930, 1933, they had jukeboxes. We build a, we, we make America. You know, we mould Antarctica to become you know, little, literally Little America, which is what he called it. And so the men had all their jukeboxes and their, you know, booze and all this sort of stuff, whereas Wilkins was more sort of, you follow the Inuit, you follow the Norwegians, you learn to live off the, the thing. So, yeah, he always did have, his biggest expedition, of course, was the um, was the submarine, and that, and that just got out of hand for him. He couldn't cope with it. He, he, he hated it. It was just too many men, you know. He, he actually wrote the... the it's better to, to have one other man and two other men with you because with one other, it's you and him. And you can work things out. When there's three, you get two siding against one. And, and he said, it's always, it's getting the, um, getting the dynamic of the group right is one of the most important things because you're going to be out there on the ice for a long time by yourself. And, and he said, uh, you have one bad person in there or one person in there who's going to upset things and it can destroy the whole expedition. So, yeah, very much. If he could have gone by himself every time, he would have gone by himself, you know. But, um. A unifying thread linking Amundsen and Bird and Wilkins. Um, you mentioned earlier Bernd Balkan, the yes. Norwegian pilot. Yes. How's he come into the, the Wilkins story? What was his entry point? Um, well, Bernd Balkan was with um, Richard Bird when Bird in 1926 tried to fly to the, um, uh, well, sorry, Bernd Balkan was with um, Amundsen, when Amundsen was, and, and Ellsworth were trying to um, uh, get to the North Pole in their airship in 1926, and then um, Bird was there at the same time. Uh, Balkan was interested in flying, so he actually went back to America at the end of the, that expedition in 1926. He went, went to America with Bird to learn to fly the latest aeroplanes. So Balkan went back to America with Bird. Um, 1927, uh, Charles Lindbergh flew across the uh, Atlantic. Bird was trying to do the same thing. He was he, he flew just after Lindbergh flew across the Atlantic, and Balkan was his pilot. Balkan wanted to learn to fly the best American planes. Balkan became a naturalised American citizen, and then in 1928 went to Antarctica with Bird and flew Bird to the South Pole. So. Um, but after that, Balkan and Bird had a bit of a falling out. Um, I had a huge falling out. Uh, and Balkan was now in America. He uh, was looking for other opportunities. He, uh, he taught Amelia Earhart navigation. And then uh, when Lincoln Ellsworth was wanting to fly across Antarctica, uh, Wilkins, and Wilkins was hired by Ellsworth to organise that expedition. Uh, Wilkins turned around and hired Bert Balkan as the pilot to go with with, um, with uh, Ellsworth. And on the first two expeditions, um, when they damaged the plane, uh, Balkan was the pilot. And, and again, Balkan and Wilkins stayed friends all their life and corresponded, and, uh, but uh, Balkan didn't have a lot of regard for, for Lincoln Ellsworth at the end of those two trips south. And on the third trip south, when, when Ellsworth went to Antarctica, uh, he took another pilot. He'd had a falling out with Balkan. So Balkan was sort of the top polar pilot of the day, without doubt, you know, 1920 or late 1920s, early 1930s. He was the guy and uh, ended up staying in America. And <clears throat> you've mentioned Lincoln Ellsworth several times. What's his 
story. Uh, Ellsworth was basically a wealthy manic depressive who um, uh, was a closet homosexual raised by a very domineering father and had a terrible childhood as a result of that. Uh, but in 1926, he inherited what today would be billions and billions of dollars. And um, uh, he wanted something to do that would uh, bring him some self-confidence, raise his status and all that. So he first, in 1925, sponsored Amundsen. Amundsen tried to fly to the North Pole in 1925, and he and Ellsworth landed on the ice and struggled back. Uh, they went back in 1926 with an airship, an Italian airship, and um, at that time, Bird beat them, or supposedly beat them, to the North Pole. So he didn't get. Um, Ellsworth came back to America and didn't get all the, the ticker tape parades and things that he wanted. And then he sank into depression because uh, Amundsen was uh, Amundsen um, uh, disappeared in 1928. Ellsworth sank into depression. He'd inherited a castle in Switzerland, uh, so he went and lived there for a while. And friends at the American Geographical Society and the National Geographic Society, they wanted to bring him out of his depression. They, they knew he was suicidal. So they, they, they were trying to find something that would involve him. And when Wilkins popped up saying he wanted to go to the North Pole in a submarine in 1931, Ellsworth's business manager talked Ellsworth into sponsoring it and said, you know, this will, this will you know, sponsor this expedition to the North Pole. Um, and, and he did. Um, and he sunk a lot of money into it, and then it didn't work. And then um, he decided, he said, well, to, for Wilkins to pay Ellsworth back for all the money he sunk into the submarine, uh, Ellsworth said, you helped me be the first person to fly across Antarctica. Because by 1932, 33, there was only one pole of first left. Everything had been done. They'd flown, people had been to the North Pole, the South Pole, they'd flown everywhere. The only sort of big first that you could get a newspaper headline out of was no one had actually yet crossed Antarctica from one side to the other. So Ellsworth said to Wilkins, help me fly from the Ross Sea to the Weddell Sea um, and, you know, debt's paid. Um, and so Wilkins was broke. He'd lost all his money on the submarine. And um, he said, sure. And he hoped to do it. In one year, he, he, he devised a plan where they'd, he and Ellsworth and a few men would take a, a plane down to the Ross ice shelf. Ellsworth could take off, fly across, turn around, come back. They load the plane back on the ship and they go back to New Zealand. Job's done. Uh, but it didn't work out like that. And the plane was damaged. And so Wilkins had to do it the following year. And the following year after that, it took three goes to get it right. Um, and and um, Wilkins doesn't say very much about it. Uh, in any of his biographies, it was just uh, you know, it was a nuisance. But in his private correspondence, he talks a great deal about you know, what he was doing. And Wilkins was tired, old and broke at the same time in the 1930s. He, uh, after the second one, he came very close if he didn't suffer a nervous breakdown. But um, he, he just writes, I'm, I'm, I'm done, I'm finished, I can't do anymore. You know, it was just fatigue. Um, uh, but they got you know, picked himself up and they went back a third time and Ellsworth actually flew across Antarctica and uh, got the job done. For an explorer with so many miles under the belt and so many achievements as Sir Hubert Wilkins, it's a constant source of surprise to myself that he is not well known in Australia. If I mention Mawson, people will know who I'm talking about. But if I mention Wilkins, I need to explain more. What is it that... that prevented him from getting notoriety in his homeland? There's probably two questions about Wilkins I can't ask answer. 
despite sort of 20 years of reading his stuff and chasing his stuff down. And one is, what sort of person was he? I can never really answer that with any great definition. And why did he disappear from the history books? That one's got me stumped as well. I actually, Mawson died about two months before Wilkins. And I went back to the old newspapers in, in Australia, uh, you know, in the, obviously in the archive, and, and Mawson's death, was, was front page news. It was like a little column down the right-hand side, famed polar explorer dies, whatever. Um, and I came forward a couple of months and I looked up the front pages of, you know, the Age and the Argus and all these things. And same thing, Wilkins is front page news, you know, famed Arctic explorer, so you hear that Wilkins dies in, you, in America. So at the time he was known, I think in since their death, um, Wilkins hasn't really translated in a sense that... that um, and I think one of the reasons for that is, as Australians, we like to keep our history very simple. And by keeping it simple, we can dispatch it quickly and think about more important things like football scores or negative, negatively gearing our next property <laughs> or, or, you know, best coffee type thing. You know, we, we have to keep our... So, as Australians, to keep it nice and simple so we can get on with the important things in life, what we do is we, we tick a box, you know, a pot... Um, uh, we need a bush ranger in our history. Fine, Ned Kelly, tick. You know, we need a singer, Dave and Ellie Melba, tick. Done. You know, World War One general, General Monash, done. Tick. We can we can put it aside. So all the people who sort of come and polar explorer, you know, oh, Sir Douglas Mawson, he's been on the whatever note with his little balaclava on, looks fantastic. We've got a polar explorer. We're done. We don't have to think about it anymore. And and that's probably you know famous aviator, Kingsford Smith, tick. You know, done. So. Wilkins was kind of, uh, you know, just missed out in that sense. It was, was Mawson got the... Um, and and, and we, we just kind of do that. And I think another reason too, if Wilkins had have been an American, there'd be three movies about him by now. You know, there would have been a 1950s black and white movie about him played, played by Gary Cooper or somebody, you know, and then a terrible... 60s colour movie with Japanese money behind it and then he would have been played by James Kahn or somebody and then there'd be the recent movie where it was Oliver Stone or Ron Howard had made a movie about Wilkins and all this stuff because he's Australian he didn't kind of get that and so um, uh, he, he didn't sort of break through to get the, the, the common sort of um, uh, uh, you know people oh yeah see that, that was the guy in the movie type thing you know he, he didn't get that either and, and it's a bit, and I've actually spoken, in fact, I've had many conversations with um, uh, documentary makers saying, you know, we'd like to do a documentary about Sir Hubert Wilkins. There's so much film and photographs and blah, blah, blah. And the big problem they all come through, it's like, well, what do we do? Which part? Because, again, all those sort of um, famous Australians that we know and they're so easy to categorise, they did one thing. There was know. a single moment. There was a can... single moment. I mean, Mawson went to Antarctica four times, so it's really the Australasian Antarctic expedition where his incredible journey of survival to get back after the two companions died. You know, that's his moment. You, t you put, a, put a finger over that little dot in history and it, he would have disappeared, but that was his moment. Monash, it was his battles at the Western Front in 1918. You know, that, that was, take that out, and he was a, you know, a, a, he'd be forgotten, you know, um, um, uh, Don Bradman swung a cricket bat. Kingsford Smith flew across the Pacific. Uh, you know, Nellie Melba could sing. But with Wilkins, you think, well, what did he do? He did so many different things. 
where's his actual story? And that and that's very difficult because, you know, besides all the, the exploration, he spent a couple of years living with the Indigenous in Northern Territory in Queensland and, um, and studied them. Nine trips to Antarctica, um, you know, trying to get to the North Pole in a submarine in 1931, uh, going around the world in a, in a Zeppelin in 1929. You know, it, it's like, what, what do you... Um, and so every time I have... You know, a, a conversation with a documentary maker saying, "Well, we want to do something about Wilkins." It's like, okay, what story are you going to tell? It's very difficult, you know, because it's, it's kind of too much. If you've done one thing, that everyone would say, "Great, that's it," you know, we can forget the rest and get on with our footy scores. Then it would have been okay. But he was his own worst enemy. He was too clever. And finally, his his attempts to demonstrate telepathy and yes. long distance communication without means of electronics what what do you make of those that that's wasn't quite what he was trying to do but as i said before he was trying to get mankind to a higher state of civilization he saw that as his sort of quest and as the second world war approached he thought well this ain't working you know we haven't learned um, and so he thought perhaps there's some way of um raising the mind, you know, developing the mind, um, going back to that Nietzsche thing of we will evolve and it will be mentally that we will evolve. Uh, he was really talked into the ESP experiments in 1938 when he went looking for Russians and he wasn't that interested. But later on, he sort of became more and more interested. So um, uh, he did those experiments with a fellow called Harold Sherman and Sherman was very much the driver. Wilkins wasn't that interested. And Sherman even got all the results of the experiments and fudged the figures and, and published the book. And still, Wilkins wasn't interested. He just sort of read the book and said, yeah, that's fine. Um, uh, but then later on, uh, Sherman introduced him to a group in 1942. And this group was in Chicago. And they were, they were channeling alien voices to, to tell people about how the Earth was formed and, and Adam and Eve were colonists from another planet and all this sort of stuff. And these people were channeling all this. And Wilkins went along to that meeting in 1942 and met these people and read some of these papers that they were channeling people from other galaxies. And Wilkins came away and, and said, I've found my anchor. And he used the word anchor. He found something that was like a higher state of civilization. And for him, it was these voices were bigger than what we are on this planet for the rest of his life he thoroughly believed in these, these papers they were eventually published as the urantia book um, but he carried a copy with it he carried copies of the paper and he he, he 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 came to believe that he was somehow influenced or had somehow been influenced from another galaxy planet whatever and that his role was to raise mankind he called them thought adjusters and these papers explain that Jesus was the thought adjuster who'd been put on earth to change our thinking. And Wilkins came to believe that he was one of these thought adjusters. So I've never quite, as I said before, I've never quite figured him out. I know in the last 10 or 15 years of his life, I, I don't know if he was actually going insane or becoming the most intelligent of all of us. I'm really quite sure which one it was. But he, he really got into that and, and started to... Um, just look for this this meaning that was beyond far beyond this planet. And you're currently working on another book from that sort of era. Yes, um, it's called Antarctica's Lost Aviator, 
Um, it will be published 2019. And it really deals with Wilkins and Lincoln Ellsworth and their attempts to cross Antarctica in the 1930s. Um, besides being depressed and having to prop up Ellsworth the whole time, Ellsworth was a, um, a big fan of Wyatt Earp, the Western Marshal. So Wyatt Earp only died in 1929, uh, just after Amundsen. And, and when Amundsen died, Ellsworth needed a hero. Ellsworth always needed someone to respect. And so what Ellsworth did when he read about Wyatt Earp, he started collecting Wyatt Earp artefacts. So um, uh, Josephine Earp was still alive. Ellsworth went along with his enormous wealth and started buying things like Ellsworth, uh, sorry, Wyatt Earp's wedding ring and all that. So a lot of people don't realise that the first plane to fly across Antarctica carried Wyatt Earp's gun belt. Ellsworth carried Wyatt Earp's gun belt and did all this sort of thing. So it's, it's a lovely, quirky story of these... Um, of Antarctic expeditions that I suspect no one really quite understands yet, but um, it, it's the first crossing of Antarctica by Lincoln Ellsworth, supported by Sir Hubert Wilkins. I look forward immensely to reading it. Jeff Maynard, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, mate. On the 18th of June, I took part in the second Grand Slam storytelling event organised by the Moth in Melbourne. I told the story about the Waddell seal launching the anchor ice chandelier that I recounted in episode 36. Thanks to Michelle Jalofsky for guidance on shaping my tale to moth specifications. Thanks to Alex Carnham for being my plus one stage nerves queller. Thanks to the event producer, Marilee McCoy, and the host, Cal Wilson. To the other nine storytellers with whom I shared the stage, and to the audience who laughed, cried, and cheered as 10 people put their hearts on their sleeves and spoke the results into a microphone. That I can't name the volunteers, stage crew and theatre staff individually just acts as a reminder how much goes into running a public event professionally. I'll link to any recordings that The Moth releases. My next Antarctic storytelling outing will be at Stories by the Fire, an event at the Newport Folk Festival on the 30th of June. It's organised by Storytelling Australia, Victoria, and in contrast to the gladiatorial slam style of the moth, Stories by the Fire is an opportunity simply to share something with an audience. I'll be co-hosting with Alex and Cameron, and if you're free and in Melbourne and have something you want to share, or if you want to see how I go retelling John W. Campbell Jr.'s Who Goes There as a folk tale, please come along. And that just about wraps up another tranche of this month's podcast hosting. I've got just enough time and bandwidth and storage and oomph left to try and get a record-breaking fourth episode out this month before I revert to the $5 hosting plan and resume regular transmission. But it may just end up being me reading my bookshelf aloud in lieu of a proper bibliography. And I'll make sure I note that's the case in the episode metadata if that's the case, so anyone other than the librarians in the audience can give that episode a swerve. Shout out to the dead this episode. I listened to Fred Dagg's anthology for the first time in a decade last week and realised exactly how much I owe to John Clark's vocabulary and writing style. I never met the man, but I feel his absence from the Oceanial audio landscape. We didn't know how lucky we were. Full stop. Take care and appreciate your coffee.